I'm Andy Crouch, inviting you to download and listen to the new Beer Edge podcast, a source for news, information, and insight regarding the brewing industry and the impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic. The show, co-hosted by John Hall and I, talks with key players on the front lines of the beer business to give you insights and advice on how to navigate these uncharted waters. The Beer Edge podcast is available on all major platforms, or you can visit us at beeredge.com podcasts. Thanks for your support. I'm John Hall. This is Drink Beer, Think Beer, the podcast that gets to the bottom of every pint. And this is Preston Tenney of Renhouse Brewing in Phoenix. Uh, a lot of brewers say it differently, whether it's packaging, yield, going off of that. But we're right around like 16, 17 pounds per barrel of dry hop on, on this one in particular, um, which was just crazy expensive. Welcome to the show. I'm John Hall, and as I promised you last week, we're going to try and bring you business as usual here on the podcast. This week, I'm talking with Preston Tenney and Luke Wartendike of Renhouse Brewing in Arizona. Tenney is a co-founder and head brewer, and Wartendike is the lead brewer. Renhouse was the first stop I made during an early February visit to Phoenix, and I was glad to go through a bunch of their beers, including their hazy IPA. Local focus is a big thing at the brewery, and finding the terroir of Arizona and translating that into a glass is what they're all about. But for this East Coast guy, I was curious about what grows in the Southeast and how it translates to the beer. And I found that it's everything from local produce to a nearby maltster that is working closely with brewers. It brings a real sense of place to the beers. We talk about IPA, of course, and their fondness for big beers, including a ridiculous IPA that they made for the Arizona Strong Beer Festival, which is why I was in town. But I wanted to start off by talking about the brewery taproom space, because I immediately felt welcomed when I walked in and really enjoyed that there wasn't a television in sight. So that's where I started, the physical location. Preston is the first voice that you'll hear. Luke chimes in later. Here's our conversation. I was really interested when I walked in here because so often when I visit a brewery these days, there it's it's a warehouse and it's uh, been converted and maybe it looks pretty nice. Um, this is an old carriage house that we're in. Well, we've heard a lot of things from uh, um, neighborhood people and, and old Phoenicians about what it was. We know it was originally a house, um, and the gentleman who lived here. Um, did some uh, production in the back. He made mirrors, uh, and then we kind of lose track of what it was for the next 50 years. But, um, yeah, I mean, as you can see from the bones, it was definitely originally in a, ha- a house uh, with some added production space in the back that we use for brewing. So what drew you to this house or drew you to this location to begin with? Um, the people who owned it before us um, were turning it into a, um, a production bakery, um, okay. So there's like six buildings on the property of which we occupy three now. Um, long story short, one of the buildings that they built from the ground up was a giant uh, uh, walk-in cooler. And um, that first caught our attention. We were driving by and we saw a giant cooler and a for rent sign. Uh, the other two buildings, <laughs> the house and the warehouse, uh, weren't really even part of that package. And then we kind of worked away to... Uh, turn it into a three-building operation. So, yeah, because there's just not many buildings that have 
the available cooler space. Like that's right. just one of those things. Like you're gonna have to. Yeah, I mean, especially without a, a distributor and stuff. You know, we we anticipated growth, so we wanted to make sure we had a place to put the kegs and didn't back ourselves into a corner where, uh, you know, eight months after opening, we needed uh, to ship our beer offsite to store it. So, and where does Ren House come from? Um, the name. Yeah, I mean, it was just uh, done by committee. There's a lot of reasons. Um, but, you know, the main one is we want to pay tribute to uh, Arizona. Um, and the cactus wren is the state bird. Uh, you know, and this is a this is both literally a house uh, that we run out of, but also figuratively we want, you know, to, to have that feel. So we just kind of looked, looked at it as the Ren house. So what's the approach to your beers? That's a good question. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, the approach to the beer is to always be moving and adapting our, uh, our recipes, our technique, and, and just the, the way we're making uh, the beer and, and the reasons why we're making the beer. Um, you know, like any brewery, we want to be aware of, you know, trends and movement in the industry, um, but also to stay true to what we want to make. And... Um, and to really perfect those styles um, uh, to the best of our ability um, and just continually grow um, with each beer we make, not just as a whole. Yeah, yeah. a good example of that is um, uh, our core kind of best-selling beer, Spellbinder. It's one of our hazy IPAs and uh, it sees distribution all around town. Uh, and that's even that beer in itself is not something we get very stagnant on. That's something that... Um, you know, we'll brew a few batches with, with a certain recipe and, and think that we really dialed it in. And then we, uh, and then we make small, small tweaks as, as we learn with, with other, other similar beers that aren't branded as Spellbinder and implement that into our like top selling beer. So even with our mass dis distributed beers, we, we're still trying to change on a, like a monthly basis, trying to, trying to just get that. What's a good example, though, of... Uh, it's re it really gr grist, grist ratios of, of cereal grain to base malt. Uh, what kind of cereal grains we're using? Is it raw wheat? Is it malted wheat? Is it um, flaked oats? Is it incorporating um, any, any other kind of like high-protein cereal grain? Um, whirlpool, hop, hop pounds per barrel numbers. Um, just, just, just kind of... As we as we move forward with a beer like that, it's it becomes smaller and smaller tweaks. Um, but a good example, really, is just like grist ratio cereal baseball. So, I'm I'm always sort of curious about this though of and, and talking to brewers where tweaks are important, right? I mean, Sierra Nevada Pale Ale is a great example of that. Of like the the beer that we drink in 2020 is not the beer that Ken first made in. 1980 like it, it evolves over time and it's small little tweaks as, as you go and you learn new things is there a point you mentioned luke before we started recording you know you just want to make perfect beer yeah. is there i don't know if you're being sarcastic or not but but no, but, no. but, I, but i find that like a, a really interesting statement is there a point when you think a beer can hit perfection and if so what does that taste like i, I think a good example of that is the valley beer where uh, we, is that we, what I'm drinking right now? Yeah, that's the American yeah. lager. Where recipe-wise, we changed it just small amounts of uh, 
changes in the corn or the percentage of uh, our base malt. But we haven't changed that in the last like eight months. And that one, we're really confident in the grist. And the changes now we're making are more small, um, but just as effective. So little things, uh, when temperatures change, uh, the water chemistry, stuff like that. So it's always adapting, but the idea is that those changes become smaller and smaller. And, and you know, obviously the target that Luke was talking about was perfection. The assumption is us, probably no other brewery will ever reach that, but if, mm. if you have that in sight, those little changes, um, yeah, we think it tastes great. It's the best batch ever. And then we try another beer that tastes a little bit better from another brewery. We try and you know see what can we do differently. Maybe the pH is just a little bit off. Maybe the strike water is just a couple degrees too high. Just those really small ones. So yeah, maybe one day we find the perfect recipe for Valley Beer, but I think that there'll always be adaption, adaptation uh, with, with brewing a beer like that. Yeah, and to that point, we can try these beers that w we really enjoy and say, dang, that's like a perfect beer. Um, but yeah, I don't think we, we could ever say that our beer is perfect. But having that having that target in mind is, is kind of crucial to to always challenging yourself and, and, and making your beer better than it ever has been. And that's always our goal. So on the website uh, and, and doing my research beforehand, it, it said that you guys like to integrate international beer styles uh, with Arizona character to craft beers that satiate and challenge the senses. I, I, I think a lot of us are familiar with international beer styles. Uh, you know, what's Arizona character? Um, that definitely sounds is it, like. Is uh, it marketing? Is it just marketing terms? Or is I think there's a lot of marketing, there is. but it's um, true. I I think more what what he means is like, um, you know, we have a pilsner that we, we're really proud of, um, but it's not a German pilsner by any means. It's inspired by one, and it's a pilsner style, but it doesn't taste like something you would ever get in Germany. So we love that concept of a German pilsner, and we'd be crazy to think we could do it better than them. Uh, there are American breweries that do it, like Bierstadt and some of the ones in Portland and stuff. Yeah. And they make, you know, just un unbelievable pilsners. And uh, instead of trying to take that on when they already exist, uh, we put, you know, our own spin on that. And whether that's the Red House spin or the Arizona spin, um, that's up to the marketing team. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, the, the other way we do it is, is, I think it means that it's community driven. So... Uh, what our most of our consumers of Renhouse beer are the ones that step foot in the tap room, um, and so we're kind of adapting our beers uh, by listening to them, things that they like. Um, so that pills around, I was talking about big spill pills. Um, we didn't have an idea in mind when we made it, but we knew we we knew what the grain should look like and that we should dry hop it. That was always the plan to make an American style pilsner. Contemporary Pilsner. Yeah. Um, and it was a single hop. So we did Mosaic once and Galaxy once and Citra once and Nelson once. And uh, pretty much universally, the, um, you know, the, our customers and our fans and our friends uh, like Nelson. So having that direct. Is, is that what you guys would have agreed with, though, as well? Oh, for sure. Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. It, it, on paper, we didn't think it would, but it did work kind of that that funky kind of, uh, you know, like wine character that, that Nelson can create, um, especially when it's not inhibited or complemented by other hops. 
really shined in a way we didn't expect in that beer. Yeah. Um, and the other ones tasted great too, but for whatever reason, this one was better. And I think having that, you know, when we say an Arizona version or whatever, that, that that's what that kind of means. Arizona, characters, Arizona is, characters is how your marketing team put it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, to be fair, also we, we 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 pretty much hit our max allotment of um, of Arizona grown and malted Sinagua malt, um, grown and malted in the Verde Valley. Um, they're a very small maltster, and they're pretty much at capacity. And we are fortunate enough to be able to get you know a few thousand pounds from them every month. Um, and that's about it. That's so the yeah, yeah. They're they're, they're out. really maxed out. Yeah, so we use it all, and and a lot of our one-off IPAs, um, sometimes some experimental lagers, we get to use a hundred percent Arizona grown and malted um, barley, which which is huge huge for us. In some respects, that is like our Arizona character, and and a good amount of our beers as well, um, which is a super cool malt. They're doing really good things. They're converting a lot of farmers up in that area to to start growing barley, which is. And what area of the state is that? Uh, the Verde Valley. Okay. It's, it's um, what's a good way to put that? Right it's south in, of Sedona. Yeah, it's an hour north of us. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And we're in Phoenix right now, so. We're in Phoenix. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and, and to that point as well, um, we always strive to use. Um, local ingredients but more so than anything it's because we get to know the people who grow it or create it um, like R&D uh, is a farm out uh, east that does some really good uh, heirloom and local and native uh, grains um, and then we get our you know our citrus in state and stuff like that so whenever it's conducive to improving the beer uh, we we absolutely use a lot of local ingredients stuff like honey and, and a lot of our spices and stuff like that what yeah. what kind of spices are you guys using um, we, in the, in the latest one we did, um, it was a lot of, uh, um, citrus peel, grapefruit, orange, stuff like that. Uh, and then we dehydrated it for 24 hours, um, um, slow roasted it and then added that to a Belgian wit style beer. I imagine you guys have used stuff from out of state as well, mm-hmm. uh, in the past. Is, is there anything that you think locally those ingredients bring to a beer that you just can't get? I, from I mean, non-local? I mean, aside I, from like the, the overall feeling and, mm-hmm. hey, it's great right. when we know where yeah. our money is going kind of thing. I've, I've yet to see, see a malt that's very comparable to Sinagua malt. I think it's super unique. Yeah, Whatever, and, their malting process is, is super unique. For sure. Yeah, we, we love their stuff. They, uh, they went at it with wanting to succeed from day one. So they bought the right equipment and got the right training. And so they came out the gates pretty... Pretty superb. Uh, the same can be said with grain R&D with their wheat. Yeah. Um, we've slowly been using more and more of it because we actually prefer it despite, you know, being three times more expensive. Um, we'd rather cut corners somewhere else um, than on the ingredients because we, we actually, we like those guys a lot. They're friends of ours, but they, they make a product that we haven't found a comparable one to, so it's worth it to us. And I think, you know, the consumer appreciates that. Um, also, to answer your question, it's things Arizona is known for, like citrus. You know, of course, we grow a lot of it, so we, we get to pick the best. Um, and wheat, too. Wheat. And then honey. Uh, Arizona makes a lot of honey, and it, it's packaged right down the street, so we pick it up in 55-gallon drums. It's awesome. Wild honey, yeah. That's a tough ingredient to brew with. Yeah. It's awful. We're... <laughs> <laughs> Um, I mean, I don't want to like spark nightmares for you or anything like that, but, uh, I mean, where do you find honey works best when you're adding it into your beers? Uh, we do it in the boil. 
Almost yeah. always, yeah. So, so what does it impart then? Just body more than flavor? Uh, it, it gives it a bit of a... Uh, you know, there's an idea that you add a bunch of honey and you get a bunch of honey character. Um, it's so fermentable that you have to use an insane amount if you ever try and getting any flavor out of yeah. it. We use it... Um, it's a really good way to manage uh, the body of beer. So, you know, we use it uh, in, you know, really bright uh, beers. Um, that we think it would um, complement. Um, but we have started using it in quantities where we are picking up the flavor. Like I said, we went from five-gallon drums to 55-gallon 55 55-gallon. 55 gal- yeah, that's not yeah. That's not cheap either. No. You guys spend a lot of money on, on ingredients. You're saying you cut corners in, in other places. I imagine it's not necessarily in the brew house. It's sort of... There's... Yeah. Yeah. You Salaries. Yeah. <laughs> no. Um, well, no, but I've talked to brewers and I've talked to distillers and other folks who, who will say, you know, yes, like if we had to charge you like what you yeah. paid for these ingredients, nobody would ever come by. Right. And, you know, so you have to figure out ways to make the beers that you want to make, but then also make them affordable for people to drink. Yeah, that's the case. We're having that happen this weekend. Yeah, yeah. With what? Uh, Strong Boy Wally, we just we. So Wally is a theme. Is a it's our triple IPA line. Yeah. Okay. And it just it's it was maybe too much hops. We're super proud of it. I think people are going to love it, but we are absolutely going to lose money every can we sell. So. What is too much hops? So what 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 was originally like an experiment in excess, which was our first one, Good Boy Wally, that that yellow label there. Okay. Um, was what we considered to be like an astronomical astronomical amount of dry hop which was around eight to ten pounds per barrel of uh, dried hop pellets okay um so now we can and how many barrels are you guys bringing at a time uh most of those are 30 barrel batches and we're and we're (laughs) princeton's shaking his head yeah yeah you're just and we're we're you're just flashbacks you're just in pain right now this is yeah we've been able to dial it in on a production scale with that dry hop rate to achieve somewhat normal packaging efficiencies so those beers are great so that what we did is we we kind of approached strong boy wally which we just packaged this week we're releasing four arizona beer week um which is why i'm in town yeah featuring it at strong beer fest you know kind of kind of our like ode to to a, a a week and a fest that has brought us a lot of um positive feedback and a lot of growth for our um brewery uh, strong boy wally in itself is was taking that concept of excess and, and doubling it. Uh, so you, so we're we're hitting that one one with I think uh, a lot of brewers say it differently whether it's packaging yield going off of that, but we're right around like sixteen seventeen pounds per barrel of dry hop on on this one in particular, um, which was just crazy expensive. I mean, I think how much kegs did you get today? Two barrels. We'll what? talk later. <laughs> um, no, yeah. So, we so we're got, at like fifty like, percent. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, we got like a forty-five percent yield on it. Um, so I mean, there's pro-brewers listening to this. There's pro-brewers listening to this who are just now going under their yeah. desk in a fetal position. Yeah, but yeah. In, I'm having a tough time keeping a straight face while talking yeah. to you guys about this. We we had we weren't going in dark. We oh. knew that it wasn't going to be pretty, so we only did a ten barrel. Just. Um, but to, to be fair, this was an incredible challenge, and, and I'm super proud that we accomplished it, and, and we pretty much extracted as much hop character as you can in a traditional method. 
and um, you got what you wanted out of this beer. Yeah, 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 yeah. it's interesting. It, it ex- we didn't know what to think because it's almost a novelty at that point. Uh, we've had other breweries that do it, and and, and they taste good, uh, but we've never tried that mm-hmm. level before, and I'm super happy with how it turned out. I think it's a, a great nod to Strong Beer Festival and and Arizona Beer Week. I don't know. It just sounds to me like one of the places you guys cut corners is having an accountant in house yeah. to stop you from doing things. like Yeah, this. no, that's right. <laughs> the nature of strong beer is sort of interesting, right? I, I I love the idea of it, and we're in this age where a lot of people are talking about low cal IPAs, or we're hearing about uh, you know how few carbs a beer might have, or session IPAs or session beers, and and that kind of thing. Like the idea of a strong beer, a, a sort of punch you in the face it doesn't care if it steals your wallet and you know runs away with your girlfriend kind of kind of beer you guys seem to revel a little bit in, in in making those styles and i wonder you know as we as we're now in a, a new decade of beer where's strong beer's place in the future where's strong beer's place in your brew house when so many of the trends we're being told are yeah, so less. Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about, and and we see that too. And um, you know, people like lagers. Obviously, those are yeah. No, really I just big. I just drank a can of your lager. So. Oh yeah, and um, and now I'm moving on to the hazy IPA. There you go. <laughs> um, yeah, so people definitely like lagers, um, but you know they don't line up to get a can of our lager like they do a double or triple IPA or a barrel aged stout. So there's always that that drive for the stronger beers um, for a lot of reasons. One is we just can't produce as much of it so that there's going to be a limited amount. Um, and the other one is it is kind of flexing your muscles and showing that you can make this big beer that's still drinkable and still exemplifies a style particularly well. Um, whereas this, you know, the best loggers in the world are ones with, with, you know, not, not a lot of complexity. Their, their strength is in their simplicity in their innate character based on the region. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of the opposite thing. So yeah, maybe lagers will go up more and, and triples and doubles and imperials will come down, but I, they're not going to swap. I think, you know, there'll always be a huge place for those beers. And as long as um, we're able to still make them, we love making them and, and we think, um, you know, we make some pretty cool brands. When you're talking about rare, so you guys have a, a bottle club or a, a membership club. Yeah, it's uh, the Suarez Society. The Suarez Society. Yes. One of the things that I found that was kind of interesting about it is it's a random drawing. It's not necessarily a first come first serve. It's people can come and sign up during a specific period. Everybody's name is basically put into a internet hopper. Yeah. And then picked at random. Yeah, so that's, um, I mean, th- thanks to Bill, uh, one of our founders, he is incredibly savvy with all that back-end kind of programming and, and, and pretty much everything related to Suarez Society. So yeah, he, he kind of built a system where, you know, that, wa- that wasn't the case the first year. It, it was definitely not, not a drawing. It was, it was here's our society and, and here's how much it costs and it goes on sale at this time and and you got people and to, we got to we got 100 it. people and then we we doubled it the next year um and then from there we essentially had to start yeah we we had way more people interested than we could fill the slots for so we kind of the best the next best thing is doing a, a a random drawing it 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 came down to um so 
we increased it by 50 people a year, something like that. Um, but the people who already had a membership uh, are guaranteed re-entry. Okay. So, um, so you have only, to grow it every year? We, we have been. We're, we're making sure that we can uh, guarantee beer for everyone who becomes a member. So we're not going to double it every year. Uh, we look back at the numbers from the year before and see what we can do. Um, but so the point being that they, when we do open it up, there's not a ton of spots. It's not like we have 300 spots that sell out in five minutes. You know, we have whatever, 30 to, to 70 spots that open. And so it, the one year that that happened, it became who's the fastest at filling out a form. And yeah. that wasn't what we intended. Um, and that was just because of the limited space in it. Um, you know, if we had a thousand people in the club, that wouldn't happen. So we wanted to make sure it was fair to everyone. What if you're at work during that one minute period, you know, stuff like that. So the drawing just seemed like the fairest way to do it. And it's worked out? Yeah. Mm -hmm. do, do you think it's, it's mitigated some of the complaints that other membership clubs might get? There's always complaints with membership clubs. Yeah. <laughs> um, the best way to do a membership club is not do it in a membership club. Why, why do one then? Uh, well, that's um, a good, good question. You know, the, the people that are in it are, for the most part, the people that have been with us since the beginning. Um, and it, it helps us focus our barrel program. Um, and, you know, there's some benefits to it. You know, they, they buy up front, so we're able to um, use that money uh, to buy barrels and ingredients and stuff at the beginning sure. of the year. Um, so it's not, it, it's not, the membership isn't a moneymaker for us, but what it does is uh, con continue that relationship that we have with people that, uh, you know, have made an effort to be our member uh, because of their you know, appreciation of what we do. And so it's just, it's a collaborative um, relationship that we have. And so those are the people we want to keep close to us and, and, and we try and do them right and they, and they tend to do us right. And it's just a good relationship. Relationship's such an interesting term because these days I keep hearing from brewers, you know, that loyalty isn't what it used to be. Uh, you know, with 8,000 breweries operating in the country, it's difficult to maintain a drinker for more than a couple of pints at a time or to, to get them to really forge a relationship with a brand like you might have been able to yeah. even five years or so ago. Yeah, I mean, you know, all this talk about the membership club and stuff and may, to people who don't know who we are, it may make it seem um, like we're bigger than we are. We're still a small brewery, so we uh, haven't seen that. We've, we've seen uh, the relationship stay strong. Um, most people that will come in here today, you know, will be on a first name basis. Um, and that's a testament to uh, Phoenix and um, to uh, controlled growth that we've exercised since the beginning. Yeah. Um, uh, you guys have consciously done a controlled growth? Well, we've consciously not done an uncontrolled growth. Yeah. <laughs> it's just the, um, the nature just, of our... It's, you know, it's, we're growing as fast as... as um, uh, our sales have dictated and you know is there a temptation to grow faster is there a temptation to take out loans and try to become something else or to to get bigger because for a long right. time that was sort of the uh, the, yeah. the the goal of you know how big and how fast how big can i get and how fast can i do it the temptations there if, if the numbers are there i mean if if it yeah. makes sense for us then we'll go ahead yeah i mean if if we were 
presented with a a plan to where we're the next modern times, we would take it. But um, we don't need to uh, do any leaps of faith right now because we're still really small. Um, so we're, we're definitely happy where we are. That being said, we bought a building around the corner <laughs> to double our production. Okay. Um, but that's all going to be um, kind of aged beer, so it's not going to it's not going to be a huge revenue source. It's more just diversifying and. Um, Speeding up the on-site production here. An aged beer like what? Uh, lagers and barrel-aged beers. You're so. gonna you're gonna age lagers. Well, both by that I mean both. Uh, we can continue to do four to six week production lagering. Okay. Okay. Um, where we're not limiting, uh, you know, tank turns, um, but also we do do a lot of uh, barrel-aged lagers and oak-aged lagers and lo- oak fermented Which lagers. The, the issue comes up a lot with lagers where we're at six weeks. It should theoretically be done, but the beer is just not ready. It's not clarified. It's not. It's is, not. Tasting. Is that a nature of Arizona? Is that Arizona character, or is that just? <laughs> no, no. I mean, that's just that's just that's just brewing lager beer. That's yeah. brewing historical beer. I mean, there's a bit of mystery to it, and, and sometimes sometimes yeast doesn't flock out the way we want it to. You know, we we still are a fairly um, natural brewery. We don't we don't force filter anything right now. Um, which obviously, if, if we did grow to a scale that that needed it, we would find a way to do it, and and, and keep our same flavor profile and such. But um, yeah, I think that um, having that having that extra building and just letting loggers take the time they need to be done is is, is kind of crucial to to the to our brand and to building the our logger brand and and keeping people excited about it. It's kind of kind of real important to. Uh, keep that quality up keeping people excited i think is important what what are you guys excited about as brewers uh, like what, what are the avenues you want to be exploring right now so me personally i know we're, me and preston are both different brewers but um i re, i really find a lot of, of joy and and, and pride in, in doing something like strong boy wally and um just trying to see what our limit is and see what we can do using four ingredients that people used 500 years ago yeah. and using those same, same four ingredients in a way that, that it still excites people and gets people more excited than, than they would with trying to brew a German Pilsner because they've had really good German Pilsners before. And uh, not to say that those aren't exciting to make, but it, it's just cool to see what we can do when we push ourselves to, to limits. And, and that's what keeps me going, yeah. makes me excited. What about you, Preston? Um, innovation where do you want to yeah, go what, I mean, what, what, what's inspiring you probably my the beer I'm most proud of uh, as a member of Runhouse is Valley Beer um, I, I don't know I know it's a boring it. beer to be really into um, but I, I've always loved it anybody who listens to this podcast knows that I'm going to disagree with you because it's a <laughs> okay. delicious lager yeah. thank you um, um, and we've really mm-hmm. dialed that in the last year you know um, and so um, growing that brand while keeping it um at its core, you know, just a really clean, drinkable beer is exciting to me um, for a lot of reasons. One being that, you know, I'm from Phoenix, got a lot of friends here. There was no craft beer culture growing up. And to this day, none of my friends drink craft beer. I mean... Like the kids you grew up with, like... They could care less. <laughs> you can't convince them to come over to, like, help out their old pal? Not, no. They, they literally could care less. I think most of them have never been here. And so once we started getting Valley Beer... Are they, you still friends with them? I am. 
I mean, cool. They support. They they get. There. I mean, in fairness, like I got a lot of friends who have jobs like where I don't go and hang out like where they do because like I don't care about insurance. Right, right. Like, yeah, yeah, no, I know. I've never understood it. Yeah. yeah. They still drink a lot. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. They're full blown alcoholics, but um, they drink at home, I guess. No, but um, you know, I'll, I'll see pictures of them on vacation. They'll bring you know two cases of Valley beer. So it it is that bridge gap between craft beer drinkers and non-craft beer drinkers. Um, and so that's exciting to me. Um, but that's that's just one that we've been really working on now, so it's on the, the front of my mind. But uh, an extended uh, passion across the board is something Luke and I have been working on for the last three months is uh, to try and never have you know just a good beer on tap and that at any given time, every beer on there, we're super proud of, you know, across the board. And it's difficult. And, I hope we do it, but from lagers to triple IPAs to stouts, kind of that diverse portfolio, I think that would be the end goal. Guys, thanks so much for sitting down with me and uh, talking beer. This is, uh, this is a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, it was a pleasure. That triple IPA, by the way, the line at their booth at the festival was hundreds deep within minutes of the gates opening, and few left disappointed. Like so many other breweries around the country, Renhouse has shifted to a to-go model in this age of social distancing. Supporting breweries during this time is something that we can all do while still being responsible to help prevent the spread of the COVID-19 virus. No matter where you live, check in with your favorite brewery to see what options they're offering to get beer moving out the door. And if you're able, look into helping out the bartenders and servers through local charities. Many have been laid off in recent weeks. You can support us here as well to help keep the lights on and content flowing. A subscription to the Beer Edge newsletter helps us cover the beer business and bring you insight, news, and commentary to this rapidly changing industry. Thanks to everyone who has been listening and for leaving feedback on the podcast review platforms. If you haven't yet, I humbly ask for just a few seconds of your time to leave a review. It actually does help other folks find the show. I'm also thankful to everyone who has written in and suggested some brewers and other beer professionals to have on future shows, and I'm definitely looking forward to having them on in the coming months once we can all travel again. In the meantime, I still have a few more weeks of interviews that were recorded over the previous few weeks and months, and will bring you those in the hopes of creating some sense of normalcy during this pandemic. If you want to keep up with the beer news and insights regarding COVID-19, make sure you subscribe to the Beer Edge podcast. It's on all the platforms, and I'm co-hosting with Andy Crouch to bring you interviews and more on how to navigate these uncharted waters. Again, it's the Beer Edge podcast, or just visit beeredge.com slash podcasts. Thanks to Nate Schweber, who does the music, Jeff Quinn, who designed the logo. And if you want to advertise on the show, reach out to Ryan Newhouse at ryan at beeredge.com. My thanks to the Arizona Brewers Guild for hosting me in Phoenix for the Strong Beer Festival and director Rob Fulmer for making the introduction to the guys from Ren House. And again, thanks so much for tuning in and your support. You can always reach me at John Hall, that's J-O-H-N-H-O-L-L, at BeerEdge.com, or you can join me on Twitter at John underscore Hall. And I'll be back next Wednesday to drink beer and think beer, and I hope you'll do the same. <laughs>